This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. We've been in a series called Love Illuminated. And uh, Pastor Cameron has been doing the last five weeks of that series. And I just want to recap it just briefly this morning for those who haven't taken in all of those, those messages or for those that might be here and you're new here this morning and you're visiting with us. Um, so we've been studying the book of John, 1 John. And it's literally about the love of God for, for his people our love, that love that gets transferred into us and, and that abiding love in us that then gets transferred to others around us. And then I get to cap it off today, um, and I'm going to get into that shortly, but um, before I get started, so week one was about how love creates fellowship. Week two was about how love for God uh, and others, how, how that love for God then transfers to others. Week three was God's lavish love, so how he lavishes with his, us with his love. And then week four um, was God's love poured in. And then last week, um, Pastor Cameron spoke from John 4, 1 John 4, and it was God's abiding love, that how his abiding love in us uh, requires that it takes up all of the space, that, that we need to pour out what the, what everything else that's in our lives so that the abiding love of God can abide in us and it can move to overflowing. And then today, week six, um, I'm going to be talking from 1 John 5, and my message is, God, is called God's overcoming love. I absolutely love <laughs> God's overcoming love. And I hope by the end of this message, um, you will agree and understand why I love it so much. Um, what I have done in this passage is I've broken it down into three parts. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this particular passage of scripture into, um, number one, the proof of love, number two, an assurance of salvation, and number three, a victory of faith. The reason why I want to do this is because... Um, if you're in the body of Christ already, then you know that throughout history um, and throughout even in our day and in our season, that the enemy absolutely loves to come against the body of Christ. The enemy loves to come against the truth of God's word. The enemy loves to come and he loves to throw in, in um, question. He loves to make, make you wonder, is is. God really real? And is Jesus really who he said he was? Could I possibly trust in this Jesus? And what is this about the Holy Spirit? You know, it's one of those things that it's, that's an intangible thing to us who are humans who, often, who live in a physical and tangible world. And so the enemy loves, and he loves to come and just subtly sow seeds of dissension. He loves to sow seeds of disunity. He loves to sow seeds of, of things that look like love but aren't really love. And what I mean by that is that literally the Bible says that without the truth, you actually don't have the right kind of love. Because God is love, and God sent his son Jesus Christ to reveal not only the love of Jesus, but the love of the Father, because he sent his one and only son to us to reveal that love. And if we don't have Jesus, then we don't have the truth and we don't have love. 
You know, in our, in our natural world, there's a, an interesting thing at play, and that is this, is that we can have a natural love, but we need the agape love of God in order to actually truly love others. And it's not until we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior that we can actually receive that agape love to love in a way in which we would guide people to the truth. So in the natural, when we are loving naturally, the scary thing is, is that we can accidentally love people towards hell instead of towards heaven. I know that's a very heavy statement, and let me put some context to that. This issue is, is that potentially we think our loving, loving actions, and, and they can be, but sometimes in the natural, we're, we perceive a loving action as, you know, we might um, not actually tell somebody the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And can I say to you, if you, if you get to your deathbed, and you've, you've had a Christian around you who, who has not actually loved you by telling you the truth, that there actually is a God in heaven, that there is a creator, that he loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to carry your sins so that you would be forgiven, that your sins would be atoned for, that you could come in from the darkness into light. If they never told you that truth, but they said, I love you. I've been there for you. I was there at every activity you had. I supported you when you chose to do this behavior and you chose to, you know, um, have an affair. I supported you. I loved you. I never left you. You know, maybe they're, they're loving you by, by, I talked with you every day on the phone and, and I spent time with you and that's my love. But if you get to that deathbed, and they have never told you that the truth is that in order to move from this earth to the next earth, or the next, well, there is going to be a new earth, <laughs> to the spiritual world, that there, there was a son of God and his name was Jesus. And he came to reveal that the father loves you. And they never told you that truth. They're, lead, they're loving you into hell instead of into heaven. And that's what the enemy loves to sow in the body of Christ. He loves to put fear on us. He loves to sow doubt. He loves to sow contention. He loves to sow those things because those things will come up against the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this morning, can I tell you that there is an overcoming love of God? That this morning, I feel wholeheartedly that God says, I want you to love on my people this morning in a powerful way. I want you to set before them the pure and true word of God. I want you to set before them the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you have never heard the gospel, I feel like God is wanting to speak directly to you because he wants to love you into heaven. Amen? And if you are here and you're already a child of God, but the enemy has sown seeds of potential doubt, or maybe that's that doubt that you're not sure if, even though you've accepted Jesus, you're not sure if you're saved. You're not sure if you're going to heaven. 
This morning, God is saying, I want to love on you this morning, that I want to overcome the enemy's lies and his dissensions and his, his doubt and his deceit. And I want you to know when you leave here today beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a Father in heaven who loves you and is pursuing you, has a purpose and a plan for you, and he wants to be a part of your life in a fresh new way after today. Amen? Amen. So in this gospel of 1 John 5, the author of John the author is, he's counteracting false teachers. And these particular false teachers were what we would know as, as um, Gnosticism. It was the beginning stages of a philosophical teaching that from the, from the Greek culture that was starting to enter into the church. So it's as the church began to grow and, and, and it moved from just the Jewish people accepting Christ into the, the, the Greek nation embracing and accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they also began to bring in philosophies um, and thoughts and traditions that began to um, infiltrate the church and, sh- and, and sow disunity, sow fraction, uh, sow um, doubt, potentially, um, into those that they were teaching. So John was actually, he couldn't actually get to these churches in Asian Minor, so he wrote to them, and he was writing to them to refute this concept of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a belief that um, Jesus Christ was, was not human, and he did not have the divine in him. They actually believed that matter was evil, and that the, and the spiritual world was good. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it later, but they actually saw Jesus Christ as, as a lower than a supreme God, but he was, uh, he, they did see him as a, as a spiritual being called the Demiurge. And um, they didn't believe, uh, and this is interesting, um, so they didn't believe that you needed to be saved in the sense that, that the gospel was going forth, that we needed to accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God in order to be safe um, in this world. What they believed in was that uh, you had to gain higher knowledge of truth, and in that higher knowledge of truth, then you would transcend this evil matter into a spiritual matter, which was good. And this is really interesting because it's, it's going to sound familiar to us. They didn't believe in sin. They believed in ignorance. They believed if you attained a higher knowledge that you could be saved, that you could, be, you could transcend this, this world. And that sounds very familiar in our culture today. And it's, and it's there and it's prevalent. And can I say to you, um, it's okay to, to, to seek after knowledge, but not in the sense that it's going to save you. The Bible says that outside of the name of Jesus Christ, no one can be saved. It is through him and him alone that we are saved and brought into the kingdom of God. Um, knowledge is good, but it's not going to save us. You know, it's exceptionally important. And this is, and this is why um, John was refuting what these teachers were teaching. Because if you remove the understanding of what the theologians called incarnation, which is that Jesus Christ, he did not uh, leave behind his divinity, but he, he set it aside. And he came from heaven to earth, and he took on human form. 
And in that, he brought divinity and humanity together. And it's true that divinity and humanity should never touch. And that's the beauty of the incarnation is that God the creator chose to bring his one and only son to enter into the ultimate place of darkness and destruction and um, depravity to bring the Father's love to us, to show us the way, to, to give us that, that chance to have that, our, our spirits reborn. And the incarnation is so prevalent to our salvation that if you remove that, you have no salvation. But it doesn't just stop with the divinity of Christ and him entering into humanity. It continues with the fact that he actually went to the cross to carry all of our sins. So from the time that Jesus died on the cross, he's been carried, he carried not only their sins then, but our sins now and those that are going to come to Christ in the future. And it's not just about him going to the cross, but it's also about him dying and resurrecting. That he was defeating death in that moment and he was coming back to life. And this is the interesting thing in our day, is that we tend to also stop at his resurrection. And can I say to you this morning that there's also something called an ascension. When Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven, that not only did he ascend as divine, but he ascended with all of humanity and reconnected us back in with God. If you do not have all of those, you do not have salvation. It is exceptionally important to know that, that the reason why John was writing this was because they were literally trying to cut out at the knees or undermine the very gospel of Jesus Christ. They were trying to, to put a thought and a theology into the minds of, of believers and those who would even want to come to Christ. That you don't have to follow Jesus. You don't have to believe in him and make him Lord of your, of your life. You just need to gain knowledge. Do you know that, that you, if you could sit here forever and gain as much knowledge about the Bible as you want? But if there has never been a moment where you have said, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, and I want to give my heart to you. I want to make you the Lord of my life. And now I want to believe in you that you are the Son of God. And I want to follow you from this day forward. Then you haven't received salvation yet. It's in that that we receive that salvation. But the, the Gnostics were coming up and they were teaching something different. So, so John was sharing uh, with them. He was then sharing with that, that uh, group of, of people, that, that church in that day. He was wanting to clarify for them what it was to be saved. And he wanted to make sure that they were assured of their salvation because he wanted to love them into heaven. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look into that. So number one, the proof of love. So 1 John 5, 1 and 2, and this is the, the Passion Translation. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, it's God's spiritual child, and has been fathered by God himself. 
And everyone who loves Father God loves his children as well. This is how we can be sure we love the children of God by having a passionate love for for God and by obedience to his commands. True love for God means obeying his commands and his commands don't weigh us down as heavy burdens. I'm going to now start to break that down. So verse 1, in the first part of verse 1, it says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So the Paul... Uh, John at that moment was addressing this fact that you have to believe that Jesus, he would, you know, so the name of Jesus was referencing his humanity, that he was a human and he had a name. It was Jesus. But you also had to believe that, that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah in the, in the Hebrew, it, it, it's about the, the coming one that was to deliver Israel from their oppressors. That's what the concept of Messiah was. So it had been prophesied in the Hebrew nation throughout the Old Testament that there was going to be a deliverer. There was, there was one that was coming that would deliver them. So John was saying, first and foremost, you need to know that you have to believe in Jesus and that he was the prophesied coming one. Number two, it was that we have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah for ourselves. So he was saying to them, you have to believe that not only is he Jesus and not only is he the Messiah, but he is, he is the Messiah for you. You can't just believe that there is a Jesus and that there is a Messiah, but you have to, to believe it for yourself. It is corporate, but it is individual. And it's not just a, a mental assent that something is true. So you can't... You, John, or John was addressing this idea that you can't just believe that there is a Jesus and believe that there is a Messiah and just give a mental assent to that and agree with that as truth without actually receiving that, accepting that, and putting that into practice so that you have a personal relationship. Um, you know, we, I already kind of referenced this concept that just because you're in church doesn't mean you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. So it's not just a mental ascent. It's about accepting and receiving and coming into that personal relationship. You know, we can, we can see this in the other scriptures in James 2 and 19. It says, and he's talking about, um, he was telling people about believing in God. And it was this controversy over actions and works and, and um, faith and works and whether or not salvation came through faith or only or works only or, or both. And in it, James says this, you surely believe there is only one God. That's fine. Even demons believe this, and it makes them shake with fear. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. Even demons believe that there is a Jesus, that there's a Son of God, that there's a Messiah, and they shake and they tremble at it. But they have no ability to receive that salvation. So James was saying to them that if you believe it, that's fine. But know this, even in the spiritual world, demons believe that and they tremble. But we tend to go, oh, I don't believe that. We don't tremble at all. We don't shake and we don't fear. We don't understand um, the, the concept of what that means, that it actually means that we are totally lost, that we are lost in a dark and depraved world. And if we don't move to a place of believing it, 
They're, we're going to be left there. But God says, no, I've sent Jesus Christ so that you will not be left there. Um, come into a place of belief. Another example is um, when Jesus came into an area of Gennesaret, and he ran into two demon-possessed guys, and they were in the, in the graveyard. They were coming out of the tombs. And, and um, in Matthew 8 and 29, it says this. This is what they spoke when Jesus Christ came into their presence. They said, what do you want with us, son of God? So they acknowledged he's even son of God. They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? I don't know about you, but I certainly would not want to be somebody who's in that state and believing, oh, there is a son of God, but not accepting it so that we can be delivered and set free. There's a great quote by uh, Professor Edmund Hebert, and it says this, it is a faith that intellectually accepts and actively commits itself to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. So John was refuting all of the Gnostic teachings and saying you have to believe this in order to be saved. It goes on to say in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is God's spiritual children. So the fruit of that belief is that they are God's spiritual child and has been fathered by God himself. That's amazing. So it's, it's referencing that, yes, you've been, you have been birthed into the kingdom. You're now a child of God. And yes, there is a creator who has fathered you himself. You are no longer separated from him, but his DNA is now in you. His nature is now in you, and you are a child of God. So number one with that is being born of God is the source of love that John was speaking about in that book. So if we want the love of God, if we want to feel the love of God and know the love of God and then express that love of God to other people, we need to know that being born of God is the source of that love to begin with. Number two is that salvation isn't earned by our works, but our belief in Jesus as the Messiah and and then comes forth in our spiritual birth as children of God. So unlike the Gnostic belief that knowledge and ascending to higher truths could save you, John is proclaiming that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. And one can only be born of God through belief in the Son of God. I love how if you dissect this, you see how you know, amazingly John is writing against this Gnostic belief that the church was, was receiving at that time. And it's, sometimes it's lost on us if we don't understand the context and the history and the background of why he's writing this letter. He's literally speaking to a church that the enemy is trying to knock out the doctrine of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The lower half of verse 1, it says this, And everyone who loves Father God loves his children as well. And, and for those who have taken in the previous messages, Pastor Cameron has done an amazing job at expressing what that looks like and how do we put that into tangible practice in our churches. Um, but in this particular portion, John is speaking specifically into a doctrine. And it's, and it's number one to break that down is since the father is characterized as a God of love, The child born of him is also marked by an attitude of love. 
So John is saying, now you can, you can have this proof of love that you've received and been born of God, that you've received Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, by the understanding that now that the God who is love and you've accepted him is now uh, loving you and, be, and you can know it if you're loving his children as well. So it's speaking there not just of the children of God, but he's speaking first and foremost of Jesus and then of other children. And he says then, because that love of God, that DNA of God that is now in you, because you are a child of God, he's saying now that you will go forth and you will be marked by an attitude of love. We are to, we are to live um, and love, not because of what other people do, but just because that's who we are. You know, sometimes the, the things that we come up with or up against in our lives and, and we struggle with loving somebody maybe or, or we, we, we struggle with understanding certain behaviors of people or, you know, those things, or even for ourselves, let me tell you, because you have to love yourself too, um, that we struggle with those things and we kind of even wrestle with, you know, God, I don't know how to love that person or I don't know how to be marked by an attitude of love because right now I don't feel like I'm loving. <laughs> Right now, I don't have an attitude of love. But can I say, if you go before God, he will get you to that place where you can just lay all of those natural tendencies down, that old nature down, and you can say, God, I'm going to make a choice today. I'm going to choose to love because you are love and because I am your child and I am marked by that DNA. So even though I don't feel it, I'm going to choose to love today, not for anything that another person has done or said or will do, but just because that's who I am. And that's who I am in you. Amen? Um, the second part to that is that, um, and there's a great quote by a theologian, Zane Hodges, and he remarks it this way, this love does not spring from something lovable in the person himself, but from his paternity. Um, I just wanted to give an example there. So for those who don't know me, I've been married for 23 years. Um, when I got married, I was 23, and a month later I turned 24. Um, when I got married, my husband had been married previously, and he had three, three daughters. They were um, 10, 8, and 6 when we got married. And um, then I came to Christ in well, nine months after we got married. So in November of that year that we got married, um, I came to Christ, and we also um, had a baby. And um, it was in that moment that I knew that I wasn't sure if I knew how to love all of my family the way I needed to love them because I just didn't have it in my natural self. And I remember going to God and, and just saying, God, I... I love my family, and I love my husband's girls to a degree in the natural. But God, I know there's something deeper. I know that there is something that I need to grab a hold of and to grasp so that I can love them the way you want me to love them. And in that, God had responded to me, and he said, Rachel, do you love their father? And I said, yes. And he said, Rachel, do, does he love his children and I said, yes. And he said, then because you love the father and the father loves his children, you can love them too. 
That's what John is saying here. That there's an agape love of God. That if you are, that the proof of your salvation is the proof of love. That you can't love another like the Father loves them until you love God and know that he loves his children and then you can love them that same way too. Verse 2 says this, This is how we can be sure we love the children of God, by having a passionate love for God and by obedience to his commands. True love for God means obeying his commands. Theologian John Stott states this, Love for God is not an emotional experience so much as a moral obedience. You know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments are how we are to love and to worship God, and then the last eight are about how we are to treat those, those with us. So if we are following and obeying the commandments of God, then we are, are loving God's children. We tend to put, put proof of our salvation potentially on, I'm not sure if I'm loving somebody exactly the way they need to be loved. And maybe you're not, because I'm not sure, I don't know about you, I know that I can't. I don't have it in me to love all of you exactly the way you need. I can't fill that void. But what I can do is I can make sure that I'm wanting and desiring and making sure my life is aligning up according to God's word the best way that I know how so that when I am, am counseling you or speaking to you or praying with you or spending time with you, that for the most part, I am, I am loving on you because I'm obeying God's commands and it's just being translated through me because that's who I am. It's not necessarily about what you're needing from me, but just the very fact that I'm lining up with the truth of God's commands, that I would, I would do my very best to not break those commands and do something that would hurt you intentionally. So John is saying that you can know that you are in the kingdom of God by the proof of love, by knowing that even if you're, you're, you're doing your best and you're, you're desiring to follow after God and you're desiring to follow his commands and you're aligning with that, then you are loving God's children because you're walking in the truth. And then when you're speaking to them, you're going to be relaying the truth to them. You know, um, verse 2, the second half of verse 2 says this, and his commands don't weigh us down as heavy burdens. And basically what he's saying there is that when we are children of God, we don't see God's commands as restrictive um, and confining. We actually see them as life-giving. Because when we, we are um, in disobedience to God's commands, and you may know this very well, I don't know about you, but I have had those moments where I know I'm in disobedience to God's word because everything is really hard. And I can't seem to, to fill what he wants me to fulfill um, because I'm actually going against his will. And when we go against his will, then we come into opposition of God. Why? Because he knows we're, we're moving away from him. But the moment we submit to God and we come into obedience to his commands, there's just this grace that comes upon you to be able to fulfill what truth demands of you. Amen? You know, the word says, submit to God, resist the devil, and the enemy has to flee from you. Most people forget the submit to God. Everybody wants to resist the devil, stand firm against the devil, prophesy against the devil, speak in tongues against the devil, that he's going to flee from you, but oh, I don't want to submit to God. But can I tell you this morning that if that's you, God says submit to him, 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So he's saying, come into obedience to my commands. It's not a burden. I will give you the grace and the strength to do what that truth demands of you and the enemy will have to flee. Amen? Okay, number two, assurance of salvation. 1 John 5, 13. I've written this letter to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you will be assured and know without a doubt that you have eternal life. So I want to ask the question, how does John begin reassuring the believers that they have eternal life? In this section, um, he begins by establishing three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And I'm going to go through this quickly because I don't want to land here. I just wanted to cover it. Um, In verse 6 to 8, it says this, Jesus Christ is the one who was revealed as God's son by his water baptism and by the blood of his cross, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit who is truth confirms this with his testimony. So we have these three constant witnesses giving their evidence, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. So again, the Gnostics did not believe that Jesus was truly human, nor that he was divine. They believed him to be, as I said earlier, an inferior spirit on earth called the Demiurge. And John was refuting these teachings by referring to Jesus Christ as the one, number one, the one that had been prophesied to come, that he was both God and man as evidenced by the baptism and his crucifixion, and that the spirit of the supreme God also gave testimony to this fact. So they, they, the Gnostics believe that there was a supreme God and that, that Jesus was like a lower ver- version in the spiritual realm of this God. Um, but John was actually then setting forth that there was a supreme God and he had all authority and that he actually had sent Jesus as human and divine. And um, the second act of, act of this, this witness was that there was an authoritative testimony of God. In verse 9, it says this, If we accept the testimony of men, how much more should we accept the more authoritative testimony of God that he has testified concerning his son? Um, so in this particular argument, John is using the argument of a lesser to the greater. So the lesser is there's a, a man's testimony, And then he's saying there's a greater testimony, and it's that of the Almighty God. And God testified that Jesus was his son at his baptism, at his transfiguration, and again at Passion Week. Um, In John 12, 28, this is what happened during Passion Week. It's 28 to 29. It says this, Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Um, So all of these witnesses of of God tangibly coming and and speaking that this was and and confirming that this was his son uh, in the not only eyewitness of people, but in the hearing of people, he testified um, that Jesus Christ was the coming one, that he was the son of God at the baptism, and that he was the one that was going to atone and carry our sins at the crucifixion. So what we want to know is, so what was the actual testimony of God? So that was the witness of God. That was his authoritative witness that it was true. So what was the testimony of God? Verse 11 and 12 says this, this is the true testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life has its source in his Son. Whoever has the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son does not possess eternal life. 
So he was, he was refuting the Gnostic teachers by saying there is no possession of transcendence or salvation nor emerging with the divine outside of the Son of Jesus Christ, witnessed by Father God himself. And without a committed faith in Jesus Christ and one in God's creation, sorry, without committed faith in Jesus Christ, one is God's creation but is not his child. So, you know, we, we tend to go um, even think of people who are um, not yet believers. We tend to call them children of God. But, you know, actually, biblically, they are a creation of God, but they are not yet children of God. And there is a defining factor there because the truth is you still need to come to salvation in order to be in the family of God and be considered a child of God. And that's why the, uh, John, in this, in this book, he is really trying to make sure that their doctrine is correct, that they have the correct teaching, so that they are teaching the true gospel, salvation of Jesus Christ, so that people would, would be assured of their salvation and know beyond a shadow of a doubt how they could receive eternal life, how they could be saved, and how they could have the, the love and the agape love of God flowing in and through their lives. Um, the reason why this assurance is so important is that what it does is it gives us an assurance and a confidence in number three, our victory of faith. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says this, you see, Every child of God overcomes the world, for our faith is the victorious power that triumphs over the world. Only that, so only that which is born of God overcomes the enemy. And I want to read a scripture to you. I absolutely love this scripture. It's Romans 8, 38 to 39, and it's in the message. And it says this, So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, and even the worst of sins listed in Scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. God says that when you know that you are saved, when you know that you, are, you have eternal life, that you have the Son of God in you, he says that is God's overcoming love for you and you can overcome anything that the enemy would try to do or bring against you. 
He was saying to that church in that day as he was refuting those teachings of the Gnostics, he was saying that cannot come between you and the love of God. Know who you are, know what you believe, and stand in that belief, and you can overcome the enemy's tactics over your life. Amen? There is a victory to our faith because of what Jesus Christ has done. 1 John 5 and 5 says this, So who are the world conquerors? defeating its power, those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm going to conclude with this. You know, John concluded in his letter by making a statement, and he summed up all the defense against all the false teachings. And it's a simple one. He said this, 1 John 5:21. So little children, guard yourselves from worshiping anything but him. You know, other translations say, Guard yourself from worshiping idols. And if you were to break that down, basically it's this. It's, it's our thoughts that create an idol. So it's everything, anything that we love, like, or trust more than God becomes an idol in our life. And, it's, and it tends to be the thing that we worship is the thing that is controlling us, and it tends to be what we're thinking. So basically, John is saying, guard your thoughts from worshiping anything but him. So this morning, if there's anything in your life that, that causes you to doubt your salvation, God says that it's through belief and acceptance and then commitment to that life of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that gives you that assurance of salvation. And the proof of that is that you love God and you love others. And in that, you can have confidence that the Holy Spirit resides in you to overcome anything that the enemy would try to bring against you. John 16, 8 to 9, verse 27, and then verse 33 says, um, and this is when Jesus is telling the disciples um, the difficulty that they were going to have when he was leaving the world that he was leaving them to go back to the Father, and he's basically saying, this is good, this is, this is what needs to happen so that you can have the person of the Holy Spirit come and, and reside in you and inhabit you, that you can have the, pre- the very presence of God inhabiting your life, each and every person, that you don't just have to go to Jesus and run thousands of miles to go and find him, but you can have the person of Jesus Christ living in you through the person of the Holy Spirit And he's saying, this is good. And he's saying, um, what would happen when the Holy Spirit would come? And he says this, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin. Because you've gone out on a limb, committed yourselves to love and trust in me, believing I came directly from the Father, the Father loves you directly. I've told you all this so that trusting me, you will be unshakable and assured, deeply at peace. In this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties, but take heart, I've conquered the world. So your, your salvation, your assurance that you are saved, gives you confidence and a peace that anything that comes up against you, you can conquer through the person of the Holy Spirit because God has given you that conquering spirit in you.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.